Hi there. Fantastic Blackness is a monthly podcast brought to you by me, Tavia Nyong'o. And me, Shante Paradigm Smalls. On this show, we explore all things Black and fantastic, and we talk about the art that moves us, how and why. And now more than ever, we need to fire up our imaginations to get us through these times. That's right. Please listen and subscribe to Fantastic Blackness on your chosen podcast platform and join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Fantastic Blackness. Today, we are discussing the fiction of Octavia Butler. And to help us do so, we have a very special guest, Jaina Brown. Yay! (laughs) Jaina, your new book, Black Utopias, has a chapter on Octavia Butler. Can you give our listeners a preview of your approach to reading Octavia Butler and how her fiction has influenced you? Thank you, Tav. Thank you, Shantae, for inviting me uh, onto your podcast. Yes, I just finished, or I just handed in my manuscript, which has a, a chapter on Octavia Butler's, particularly her um, parable series. So that's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. Uh, that's the, the two that I'd center this chapter on. And uh, like, like you said, Tav, to me, one day, it, all of these apocalyptic and dystopian narratives and novels that we read, we've been reading, do they help us or do they hinder us in terms of getting through this period of time? Um, which I think we'll be talking about later. Uh, my interest in what I'm thinking of as speculative literature, science fiction, uh, and media is for the worlds that they build, the world building that they engage in. And, um, and my question and what I'm interested in exploring is how far the authors can reach out from a common sense understanding of uh, what is human, particularly apocalyptic um, narratives ask this, what do they assume is inherent to humans and what is it that they hold on to? My approach to Butler is based in a respectful close reading and in archival research that I uh, conducted at the Huntington Library where her, her uh, archives are. Butler, you know, is the subject of great deal of veneration. Uh, Some of it I uh, critique, but actually I believe we should analyze her work for what is there in her texts and materials, not for what we want her to be. I think that people want Butler to feel all sorts of desires and, uh, you know, understandably and rightly so. Uh, her desire, uh, a desire for a black feminist voice, for a challenge to binary gender construction, and for attention to ecologies. When considering the parable novels, as we will today, people welcome a prescient view on what can happen next in the apocalypse. What is there that we can strip away? What is, is there that um, we that goes that gets destroyed in the socio-political infrastructure and what can we build in its place what is possible so when is your book coming out and when can we expect it out it comes out uh february 2021 
Okay, great. So next year, next <laughs> early spring. Awesome. Yes, I'm excited. So I guess uh, we, one of the things we wanted to ask, or Tavi, if you wanted to ask this, but we're we're going to do a little COVID-19 check-in. So what day is it for you, Jaina? Mm. And then Tavia? Mm. Well, you know, I, I'm over my initial freak out. Um, the first four days or so, I was crying. I was lashing out. Uh, I was feeling trapped since I, I couldn't run anywhere. We couldn't go away anywhere, get away from it. Now I am practicing uh, what a survivor from the Diamond Princess advised from the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess. I heard him uh, talking on a some web on some news show. He said uh, first and foremost, what he did and what they did was to de-escalate their stress level, find ways to limit and treat uh, their stress because stress affects your immune system. So I took this very seriously and I've been um, um, practicing forms of uh, stress management, put it that way. Second, he said to be in the present, to stay in the present. It is that what if that kills me. Uh, So, you know, to go back to that question of whether these narratives help me or hinder me in the ways that I've absorbed them, right? Uh, questions that I was asking myself at the beginning and still do, do I pack an emergency backpack like Olamina did in the parable series? Uh, shall I concentrate on learning survival skills? And what are they? How to make a poultice, welding, building, sewing, knitting? This is what comes to my mind, right? Is where are we all going to be? you know, what world are we going to be building and what kinds of skills do we need to build it, you know? So I'm thinking, well, how much of that do I think about? Or, you know, finding that balance between what's, to find that balance of what's an appropriate reaction or response to the moment. You know what I mean? So I'm not going too far into worry land or too much into denial land. So for me, um, I just realized that I have no idea what day it is. Um, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, in the second month of all this, but time that I was much more diligent about keeping track of um, in the first days and weeks um, of the, of the, of the, of, of social distancing and the quarantine has now become a little bit more, um, a little more kind of open-ended and diffuse. One of the things I did kind of early on was learn from you, Shante, because you were very, you're one of the people on my social media who was very proactive in terms of getting preparedness uh, messaging out there. I know you're going to say something and when you talk about your own check-in, um, but um, you know, there was that period where we were, I'm, speaking from New York City, you know, running around and trying to get um, not just food, but basic medical supplies. 
there was one meltdown where I was like texting Jaina about like trying to get, I was stuck in the pharmacy trying to get a thermometer. <laughs> that Jaina remembers this. Uh, I got the last thermometer, you know. So they just did that crazy <laughs> sort of, actually a kind of, um, in a weird way, a sort of consumerist uh, impulse where this is something that I'm, you know, not particularly proud of, but it's an aspect of a kind of American response, right? Is that we're just going to like get all the supplies that we need and then we're going to like literally create a bunker against the world, right? Uh, yes. So, um, you know, there, you know, and then the, um, then there's the sort of mutual aid connect to others impulse that's a little bit stymied by the fact that we're really not supposed to be seeing people or gathering. So it's like, what can you do through, um, uh, through, uh, uh, through, you know, zoom and other kind of like platforms, right. And, uh, donations to <clears throat> GoFundMes and, and, and initiatives like that. And, um, and then in the last two weeks, this sort of turn, which has been, very important and I'm still wrestling with towards really understanding the like I would call it the biopolitics of the of the crisis and the racial disparities of who's being hit and um, whether we're talking about like in the US where the black population is very disproportionately impacted um, in my own city, in Houston, in Milwaukee, I mean, throughout the country, right? And that actually took a couple of weeks before that was even made, you know, before that became, um, uh, be before that became spoken of to, you know, the, not just the sort of racist targets against the WHO, a World Health Organization, but also um, there was the kind of a news cycle where some European scientists wanted to test a, um, vaccine on African Africans first <laughs> um, and there was like a very strong response from who about that in terms of this hangover of a colonial mentality in terms of who is seen as a kind of disposable or grievable life whose lives are disposable um, a friend of mine put it quite well the essential but disposable worker right <laughs> and ah. how we, you know um, right. And, right. And, I, and I think that it's because I think about how, you know, Butler gives us the, you know, some of the tools to think about that, like in the, even answering the question that, that Jaina brought up, right, is like, has our reading of dystopian fiction prepared us for this moment or not, right? I think that one of the ways it does is grappling with that paradox of like the essential but disposable. Um, mm. And then the last thing I'll say, just because this, the last thing about my check-in as I spent... Uh, part of yesterday and some of today watching the One World concert. The um, And it's, I don't know if you have time to talk about it at all, but uh, it's, you know, the Lady Gaga brings the world together uh, and the celebrity industrial complex yet again is called upon to do the work of, you know, saving humanity. And it's really... I, I, it's kind of ludicrous in some ways and very schmaltzy, but then there are also kind of moments where you see people, um, you see like, um, there, you see, you see there, there are other, weird, there are other moments where I see, uh, something interesting happening. Um, it's almost like an episode of sensate in some way. 
you know, in terms of like all these, you know, faces and voices like kind of threaded together into some sort of impossible tapestry of of um, of humanity um, united in, you know. Well, the thing about it is, is sort of, and maybe actually this is also something that Butler's fiction allows us to think about. A lot of the language is about a kind of, um, you know, fighting the battle lines, you know, and turning the virus into a kind of like an enemy, you know, and so there's a very, very strong, um, understandable, right, but a strong impulse to uh, 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 unite the unite the human race by by projecting, you know, a kind of alien image onto the virus, right? And the virus doesn't actually have that, you know, the virus is not at war against humanity, right? <laughs> you know, like, and, you know, taking precautions against the spread of COVID and trying to, you know, fight a pandemic doesn't necessarily require us to do that. And yet somehow over and over again, that seems to be the kind of language that we fall into. Um, and science fiction, I think, has a much more like weird and productive relationship to bodies that are made kind of porous um, to um, uh, uh, and, you know, to, to, to viral contagion. Yeah, I mean, what you both are saying is so great and it's making me think about a lot uh, from the sort of very material, a current material to the speculative Thinking about also uh, in the um, when the uh, COVID um, became more of a global um, concern rather than a regional or a country concern, sort of in mid February, and um, I think by late February, early March, there was all this speculation as to why Africa hadn't been hit. Right. Hard. Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? It was supposed to be. It was almost as if Africa was supposed to get hit hard. You yeah. know. <laughs> Why are right. Dying, right. You know. And um, and then uh, I just uh, the Guardian or, or uh, uh, Reuters is projecting. I really don't know based on what science actually. Three hundred thousand uh, Africans across the continent are going to die, and it's really not based on any. Uh, it's based on a colonial projection. Um, that's not to say that, of course, you know, there aren't, um, there's one, I think in South Sudan, there are more vice presidents than ventilators. So it's like, there's actually, you know, but it's not in terms of cases, um, it's not, it's not really based on anything uh, um, real uh, in terms of ep epidemiology or virology. So there's a kind of heart of darkness imagination on, yeah. on to, yeah, uh, cloistering the, uh, cloistering the virus on black bodies, whether it's on the continent, um, the Caribbean, or, you know, now we see the rise of the white supremacists when, you know, two weeks after a report comes out that it's disproportionately hitting black people, we have all these white folks or, or some population of white folks saying, you know, give us free. So I think that's very interesting. So in terms of my own, um, you know, so I'm a little bit of a prepper. Uh, I'm an urban prepper, not in terms of like hoarding things, but in terms of um, I've done a training with the National Guard for emergency preparedness. I have a to-go pack for me and my dog, uh, which includes iodine and knives and seeds and, um, you know, um, uh, uh, so uh, Imperable of the Sower, I have to well, say, was a book 
that really influenced me. And uh, I think I got to it in the uh, maybe five or so years after it came out when I was in college in the late 90s. Um, that really influenced me to start thinking about um, preparedness. And so um, someone said, I feel like I'm living in a sci-fi movie. And I said, well, I feel like I'm kind of prepared you know, because I've spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about science fiction and, and yeah. zombie apocalypses, especially. Mm. And so, um, you know, um, my own sense of uh, what's really interesting about this uh, very sad and devastating time. I've been, per- you know, I've had friends, uh, friends who've gotten COVID, um, uh, friends, parents who've gotten it, um, um, uh, and friends of friends who have died, not, not a, 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 you know, friend of mine yet. Um, but what is really sort of interesting about this to me is that, uh, as you mentioned, the social aspect of going through an apocalypse is, is not there. And so that the imagine, we've all imagined that we'd be doing this with other people mm-hmm. and in person. And that's really not the case on mass. You know, people are maybe with families or roommates or a lover or friends, um, but it's, we're really going through this yeah. together alone, which is really inhuman and unhuman. It's, you know, we're, we're social creatures. Um, but I, yeah, so I, I started in late February getting masks and food and gloves and some things I already had, but um, um, together and um, I had this experience of being in the Atlanta airport and people were like taking pictures because I have this mask that looks a little ridiculous. It looked like Bane, you know what I mean? Mm. From, from Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, I think you, I, I see want, that mask. I wanted something cool, you know what I mean? And so it's like, it's like camouflage and it's got these things on them. And people were like, ha, ha, ha. And like two weeks later, everyone's mm. wearing a mask. Everyone's wearing gloves. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I just say that to say that there's also, I've been thinking about the social pressure of, performance of wellness and that in the United States in particular, wearing masks is a sign of illness, whereas in other parts of the world, it's a sign of care for other mm, people and, and yeah. kind of mutual care. And I think, I think that's one thing that has, is shifting in the United States is that uh, people are probably going to be wearing masks more um, after this pandemic has a, you know, there's a antibody test and there's a vaccine but I also have been thinking about being a Gen Xer and growing up under the shadow of the, the colder, Cold War nuclear age, mm-hmm. as well as crack, growing up in the era of crack and growing up uh, in New York, um, between New York and Connecticut, and also um, being a child during the AIDS era. I went to my first AIDS-related funeral when I was like seven years old. So I think those three things um, really shaped my um, idea about world endings because I was like watching the world end in real time um, and then had a fear of a much more apocalyptic or, you know, a, a, a species uh, or planet ending uh, uh, with, with nuclear war. And so I think about, um, mm-hmm. I was obsessed with war games, you know, the movie Matthew Broderick and um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Red Dawn, you know, with Patrick Swayze, the yeah. invasion from Russia and Cuba and, and, and it really, it really, um, shaped how I saw the future. Not, I didn't, not great, but I ha- I'm having this experience where I feel like Gen Xers are handling this moment better. Um, uh, a lot of us have been like very confused by our boomer parents or our great generation grandparents who refused to like stay inside, you know, when they were like, you know, my brothers and I had to like really cajole my grandmother to not go to church. She's 94 years mm-hmm. old, you know, 
And I've been talking to all these people who like parents were just acting like they were 14, you know? And um, so I think, I feel like a lot of Gen Xers have some, we grew up in this very weird time of a lot of um, uh, fear, you know, fear of the world and, and seeing a lot of death happen um, around us. So um, I recently taught Parable of the Sower, um, the graphic novel version. And I don't, Jane, I would love to, I don't know if you've read it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And um, what I, what was really interesting teaching in real time just a few weeks ago is my students were sort of like, was she a prophet? <laughs> and I said, you know, I think Octavia Butler just looked at the cycle of history and looked at some of the political, sociopolitical, I think, especially living in the West Coast, um, movements and the kinds of things people were saying and seeing the kinds of disparities in wealth and seeing the rise of walled, fenced communities and seeing the rise of gated communities. And that, um, you know, looking at what was necessary in some ways was we couldn't depend on we couldn't depend on the government because it wasn't concerned with care. It was concerned with accumulation and capitalism and that companies or other countries and that in the case of Parable of the Sower um, were more interested in um, acquisition of the United States in this case for its parts. And so I think that a lot of, one of the things that COVID has exposed is the that the United States is ready for war, but it's not ready for um, biological, um, you know, uh, you know, I thought a lot about- Catastrophe. Su- Catastrophe. I thought a lot about Susan Sontag, you know, in terms of uh, AIDS and its metaphors and illness and its metaphors and that, you know, you turn it into a war, but this isn't a war, that guns and right. knives and, and those kinds of, we're not prepared that way. It's like, we need care and we need, ventilators and we need hospital beds and we need um, uh, food and we need people um, helping one another. And those aren't things that we've as a country really cultivated um, over the last, you know, whatever, a hundred years. So. um, Well, it goes against the national ethos, which is this kind of, uh, you know, individualist, you know, what these people are calling for now is the, the right to, you know, infect themselves and others as a freedom, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a complete, it's a hyper-masculine whiteness that's, that's, that's a death, death cult. And that death cult is really disproportionately impacted. It's a death cult. You know, black and brown people. You understand, I understand now why they could even talk about death panels. Because this is the kind of stuff that's on their minds. And yeah. so the, yeah. the politics of care that we actually care for, even if you're like USA number one, there's nothing that these people are doing to make the USA number one, except for number one in deaths and cases. And so it's a weird thing where it's like, we want to be number one, but we don't want to do anything around. Di- and these things are, and the things that we aren't able to do are inconveniences. We have electricity, we have internet, we have food, we have clothing. We have, people are still driving around. It's like when the electricity goes out, when the food supply dries up, then we're in trouble, you know? So it's very interesting to me that what people are calling fascism or, sorry, socialism and communism, <laughs> right? This is the problem, not fascism. Socialism and communism is about inconveniences. They want to go back to work, I, you know? 
Let's take a break and then we will resume with the conversation about how Butler was prescient about all these developments. Or maybe not developments. Maybe they've been there, big baked into American culture for hundreds of years. Okay, we're back, and I want to pick up the conversation by casting our memory back to 2016, that other trauma, that other recent trauma, uh, where we saw the rise of Trump. And um, that was, at least for me, a moment where there, everyone started reading the parable series again and talking about how prescient Butler was, in part because of the, um, uh, I guess this is where we, this is the part of the discussion that we get into spoilers, but, uh, the, but, but where uh, there's a conservative, uh, when, there's, when President Jarrett uh, uh, is, is elected on the slogan, make America great again. So uh, turning to, um, uh, turning to you, Jaina, uh, talk about how, um, you know, what you thought of that, um, of that idea of, of, of Butler being a kind of prescient reader of the rise of Trump and then how that looks four years on, right, uh, here in 2020 as we're dealing with the reality of the Trump era facing the COVID-19 crisis. Well, I think that, uh, you know, like Shante was saying, much of what is happening now could kind of be seen, uh, you know, as part, as an inevitable consequence of Reagan era neoliberalism, the privatization of everything, right? Because in, uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler, I don't think so, because you find out in the first few pages, the privatization of the fire department, the police department, water, uh, you know, they're in these gated communities with no social net at all, right? And um, so, you know, when she was writing these books in the early 90s, she's like, this is what's going to happen in, you know, 30 years or something. And I mean, what's so interesting and spooky is that the books begin in, I think it's 2024, Right? That's right. Yeah. And what, what yep. and what she right? And what she's talking about is the apocalypse is not a one-time event, but a period of 15 years, she says, from 2015 to 2030. She gives them those dates, but it's not as if the apocalypse uh, you know, is one flash event. And um I that's really been on my mind lately, you know, is like what's a slow drag, you know, what you know, what's it mean to have that that build up and I think like Shante, I was prepared in a certain way mentally before, right? I mean, you were mentioning the um, nuclear war and I was a kid too. And, the, the, you know, nuclear war was imminent. We were all going to get blown up, right? And um, 
And that was, you know, what we grew up with from the 80s, right? I mean, we grew up in the 80s, which we've been in fear of these neocons, we used to call them. Um, now we're just got plain old fascists. You know, we've been scared for a long time, especially as black folks, right? We've had our own apocalypse in our communities going on forever. Right? That's It's an apocalypse that we're here. <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, not answering the question that you were asking me to talk about. Um, it It's prescient. So that's one, that's tons of ways why the way it is prescient. And, um, you know, the president, president Jared, who uh, is a character in the book, anymore, um, we do see incredible, re- uh, you know, resonance on, on f- freaky resonance, resonance, um, because the right the slogan that he promotes and runs on is make America great again, which is uh, quite scary. And the mog is in that book. Oh, Right. No spoilers. Anyway, I think we uh, I think I think we could do spoilers. Yeah, I think we we just have to alert people that we're in the spoiler zone. So, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, spoiler zone. Uh, the magas in that book, not that they're called magas, but uh, they um, are. I mean, there's a little difference because, well, uh, the majority his party is also fundamentalist Christian. So there's this kind of avid authoritarian uh, Christianity that it, he that's used in certain radical groups in the book um, take over and create these incredibly horrible circumstances for people. Maybe I won't try to blow it too much, but um, you know, so it, you know, and, and um, okay. So now I'm getting, on all sorts of tangents, I could I could go on, but um, well, one one if I could just jump in there and you know Shantae yes. too, feel free to is sort of thinking about initially. I remember thinking, well, Trump is a very different kind of political figure than Jared because he is not a particularly religious figure, right? And he represents a kind of crass, opportunistic and somewhat buffoonish New York capitalism, right? But I think actually over the last four years, there's been a real consolidation of Christian capitalism such that at this point, you know, Trump does exactly what the right-wing religious base wants him to do. And, um, and they have reconciled them fully with this, you know, um, uh, cheating, like porn star screwing <laughs> profane man as somehow they're like the second coming, right? Like it's not, um, there's a devil's, there's a, there's a, some kind of devil's bargain that's been sort of made. So this, it's not as if mm-hmm. to me, the power of the sort of MAGA cults in the parable series is less, you know, that, Butler predicted the future in some sort of direct and linear fashion, which is really never the case in science fiction, actually, but that she really saw tendencies that are, you know, for one, the whole, uh, like, presence of religion and the importance and power of religion, including actually Black religion, uh, especially in the first um, 
uh, in the first book and the Save the Black use of the Exodus narrative um, is is quite powerful and I think speaks to one. I mean, and, and then of course the obvious. Um, I know we're going to talk about Earthseed as the 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 religion that Olamina invents, right? Um, that there's a very real kind of powerful understanding that this is not going to be something that is simply like waning away or becoming less relevant as we move into the future, but, um, but actually something that's going to coexist and, um, and, and, and thrive in, 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 in reaction to, in response to ecological crisis, technological change, and, um, uh, well, those two primary things, ecological crisis and um, uh, well, economic inequality. Yeah, I think also the another part that she hinted at uh, in the parable of the sower was this um, selling off of the United States. I mean, some of that was happening already in the late 80s and the 90s because of the U.S.'s ongoing uh, then, then debt to Japan and uh, China and our ongoing debt, uh, debt to China. But also this idea of Russia um, being able to, um, we have a president that is basically in bed with the Russian mob. And so it's like selling off whatever, privatizing things and selling off things for its, for its parts. And I think the idea of um, uh, when people were saying, you know, this man is really going to destroy the country it was seen as hyperbole. And it's like, well, if you put a, you know, infant to drive a bus, it's going to crash. And so the, I, the idea now that, um, you know, dismantling the uh, CDC's pandemic that George W. Bush started and that Obama strengthened, dismantling that made it, um, made it inevitable that we would have this kind of, kind of, um, you know, gold plated trash can ex- existence. And, and, <laughs> So the, well put. <laughs> you know, that it's, so I was like, wow, I was like, the U.S. is like Bougetto. We have like cars, but no gloves. I don't know. It just was very, it was very like, yeah. very, very yeah. interesting what we, what we value. And so seeing an apocalypse happen yeah. in real time, which is, you know, an overtime thing, the conditions for apocalypse have been set. And then when an event happens that, you know, um, dissolves, um, a kind of a fake structure that's actually not really, um, it's not really sound. Like other countries have sound structures and they're still struggling, but we don't have a sound structure. I think people are believing now, it, some people at least are believing now in the need for when you have a large country, you have to have structures. And so it's, uh, you know, I'm interested in when I just want to say when I was having the students read this, I could tell that they were like, just a few weeks before we had um, watched um, Train to Busan. And, you know, it was all very sort of theoretical and sort of hypothetical to them. And it's like the zombie outbreak in, in South Korea. And you see how people behave, how the CEO behaves, how the working class behaves. And then they were, students were watching these kinds of things happen in real time, how businesses were, or rich people were demanding certain um, things just remain in place. And so I do feel that there's something, what I kept saying to them about Peril of the Sower is I had them do this project where one of them had to create earth, uh, one group had to create earth seed, another had to be the government and think about how they would do this. Other people had to make a plan of how, where would you go? 
You know, how, what would, what, what's in your backpack? Who are you, who are you going with? And they were like, we're so unprepared. We don't know how to yes. think about, we don't know how to think about radical change, our place in it. We're just used to being taken care of. And what happens when there's no one to take care of us? And I said, you'll have to think about this stuff. You know, you have to think, not to be scared, and, but you have to think about what happens. It's happening now. And so how do we um, work together you know, just in groups of three or four. And they were like, oh, okay. you know, so. That might be a good segue to the question like, that I had. Um, oh, Jaina? Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I can probably well, say what. I yeah, want to say. jump in. Because, you know, in terms of um, both in terms of students working on Earthsea, but also like getting the, the value of, of the text is, 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 is spurring some kind of preparedness or capacity to sort of speculate imaginatively about the situation and critically and, spe- and speculate uh, uh, about the conditions that we're in um, brings me to the question I wanted to, to, to ask about the ways in which Butler has been um, embraced as a sort of black feminist um, hair, you know, like figure, but also like what the, what, what is the sort of black feminist perspective on post-apocalyptic fiction? And this is something that's, I think, quite visible in the, um, in the graphic novel um, in particular, but also of course in the fiction itself, um, what you think about um, how these questions that we've been talking about um, play out in terms of Butler and black feminism. Well, can I just uh, answer or segue by uh, uh, responding to Shante's um, words or, or what she was saying? Um, you know, that Butler, it, throughout all of her work, right? And she has this kind of, this really grim kind of Darwinism uh, in terms of how she sees what is inherent to humans, right? We, mm-hmm. we dominate, we... Um, uh, we're hierarchical, right? These are the two things that it, in her uh, her series that used to be called Gen- Xenogenesis, uh, right? Those are the two principles that we learn about humans, right? Um, and she's she's really always in her books. There's um, people are forced into survival during crisis. Right? See, that's really fascinating to her. You know, what do humans do? And so she has this fierce kind of unrelenting Darwinism, right? It's very, her books are gruesome, right? Which I love (laughs) Um, because they, you know, uh, but Butler is aware that this kind of individualistic competitive model of survival is not the only model for life um, found in uh, Earth's, at least in the larger uh, ecological system of the Earth, right? Because she's looking, she's very interested in biology and biological systems. And um, uh, so, right, so her work considers also other forms of cooperation, symbiosis, uh, right? Her narrative signature is the way her books force these forms of survival together. This is what I'm, what I think in her books, because you have both things, right? And then you have uh, uh, this tension between consenting and being coerced, compulsion, being compelled to something, but then also being repelled. Um, and uh, what I was thinking about, 
is her book. There's another book that she wrote that's part of another series called Clay's Ark. And in that book, there's an infect, an, an, in, a, a, a virus that comes from another planet and infects humans. And that book is really dark. Uh, it's fantastic, but it's very dark. And that compulsion repulsion is very much alive in that book. So that's to not answer the question that you just asked. Um, but I think, um, you know, for me, the question of, you know, I'm very excited about what it has inspired in people in terms of uh, making, articulating and making part of uh, uh, the way people think about their approach to the world, right? Inspired by Butler in this sort of feminist way. But I also wonder, um, you know, what I would encourage, what I want to encourage is also not to be sort of blindly celebratory, you know, and of that she represents every, you know, that she writes about every, you know, to have it be respectful to what she's actually doing, you know, because she is, um, she does have, you know, uh, part of what she assumes about humans is a very kind of heteronormative model of uh, reproduction has to be biological. Um, in that book, there's really this this relationship between. Um, I mean, you know, Olamina's whole point is, you know, species immortality, right? And it's through this kind of biological reproduction. So we love that there's not a lot of eugenics in the book, but then it's also invested in this kind of biological model. So. You know, it's like, what kind of feminism? What are we talking about when we say feminism? What is it invested in? What's relationship to queer, queer theory, queer ideas? Um, so I, I, I'm just cautious about the ways that are just what we want and what we need is being projected onto her work. Um, because she's like our only black woman who writes this speculative stuff. And, you know, but she rep, but she has done... And I know, Shantae, <laughs> you have some things to say, um, but I don't know that we are um, disagreeing. I just, well, no, um, I, I agree I, with you. I think you're right. And I, I, mm-hmm. she's not the only one. I mean, she's, she was the first. And I think it's important. She was the first. That's what I mean. Yeah, and she's yeah, yeah, third, yeah. I mean, I think if you think about the work, um, if you talk to any of Black women, science fiction writers, Andrea Harrison, Nalo Hopkinson, uh, and the Okafor, N.K. Jemison, Toyo Adamani, um, they all say the same thing. A- even Adrian Marie Brown, not writing um, speculative, uh, science fiction, but speculative fiction with emergent strategy that really comes from Earthseed and also with the Octavia's Brood. That what, I, I think that like what Octavia Butler did and what she spurred are like, that's a very interesting conversation, you know? Like, two different things. Two different things, yes, right? Yes, two different yeah. things. Like, yeah. And I think about this a lot, what you're saying in particular with um, I'm writing about, um, I'm writing about uh, fledgling. I'm writing about Shori for my second book. And it's like, I mean, the book is not that great in terms of its writing. I don't believe it was our last published book. I don't really know what was going on with her, but... Um, but I think it's really compelling to me because it's so complicated and it's so weird and it's so blatant in its desire for um, hybridity. And I think there's something very important 
um, very important to me about the fact that Octavia Butler, every single protagonist in every single book is a black woman or girl. Like that's very, very valuable. Um, how those characters play out. Like Shori is like a problematic, a rapist and a child who's in them, but who's a good and who's a that and in these pedophilic relationships. And so I think that she's, you're right, that Octavia Butler is very interesting in reproduction. She's very interested in, I think above all, she's a humanist. She's very interested in human survival by yes. any means necessary. And I think that that creates a lot of blind spots. And I do agree yes. about, you know, hagiography. Hey, it's like Octavia Butler is very important to me as um, was important to me as a science fiction nerd, as a, as a child, as a young adult, and, can, you know, as a scholar now. Um, but the, her importance is what makes it important to me that there be critique and there be pointing out gaps, um, uh, you know, and that it's not all celebratory because I think that there's, there was some stuff, I, it feels really conservative, you know, um, yes, yes, and, yes. Um, and I, you know, so I, I'm not disagreeing with you there, but I do, I'm, this is maybe for another discussion when we can have coffee, but I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in like, what kind of black feminist is she or is she a black feminist? Because I, I feel she is, you know, but what kind, you know, and, um, and what has, what, cause I feel like she's done a lot for black feminism even if she, her politics are sometimes tricky, you know? I had a bunch of, well, I had two other, I had two other questions uh, about, about the parable series, but maybe the one that makes the most sense to jump to now is to talk about what change means in the book. Um, and I guess it's sort of threaded into both the question of what kind of black feminist she is, but also what Earthseed is. Is it a religion or is it a, um, is a kind of obvious system logically derived from an analysis of like the world, right? Um, is the importance of Olamina in the series as a kind of author surrogate in part because I think about, I mean, Chante, you mentioned the importance of protagonists, right? Black female protagonists, um, but also how the structure of, of, the, of, the, of the novel is as a, as, as a journal, right? It's a first person journal, right? And so we really are brought into like the world, right? Of this like, um, is she 15 years old when the, when the novel begins? Yeah. So uh, the, um, but throughout, you know, the thing that, resonates and I think people pick up on and transform in, you know, I think that what Adrian Marie Brown is probably the, um, the clearest example of that in terms of taking her fiction and uh, uh, I guess applying it to social change, right? Uh, uh, social practice um, is, is as change. So, but, but which, which, which raises the question, right. Of like, what does, what does change mean for Butler in the parable series? Well, I mean, yeah. So her, uh, belief system, Olamina's belief system, which she talks about as coming to her as being discovered, right. Rather than her Mm -hmm. creating it, she talks about it as, as being discovered. Uh, and, um, 
you know, she, uh, Butler actually describes it in her notes as she's developing uh, ideas for, for these books as she describes this earth seed idea as quote, odd, obvious, hardly religious at all, and yet less than wholly scientific, right? Which is wonderful. It's wonderfully kind of elusive in, in many ways, which keeps it, it's wonderful. It's not, it doesn't have a script in that way. I mean, she gives it a script, right? The end bit is that we are meant to go to the stars, to extrasolar space, um, but, but what I do think is, and this is related to the religion, um, to the question of what kind of belief system it is, um, it, it, you know, I do think that um, she is, what is feminist about her, and I've written about some of these mystic visionary women from the early 1800s, is that she's self-authorized, right? She doesn't have to be authorized by a church or any other body that would see women as secondary, right? She's a self-authorized visionary. And that part I think is very, is readable through a feminist, definitely through a feminist lens. Um, and that she's such a baby, right? <laughs> um, so what was the other part? Of, what was the part of oh, change, right? I mean, this was one of my questions in reading in my chapter is, um, you know, because, right, the aphorism that most people are familiar with is God is, ch you know, God is change, right? And um, which I think is fabulous. I think that's a fantastic um, meaning. But I think that in the books we have, there's still this question. Because if we have a species with these particular determinants and the urge to make, you know, the species immortal, which is mentioned in both books, um, then what kind of change are we talking about? You know what I mean? If, if there's these things that keep humans so tied to this need for authority, authoritarian model or whatever, all of the sort of um, aspects, the negative aspects of humans that we see, you know, if they're inherent, then what, you know, so there's different models of change, right? This is what I was thinking about. So change, there's evolutionary change, which she's speaking to, but she's saying, right, that humans are the ones that are the most capable of accelerating change. This is what Olamina says, right? And I think it's true. We don't have, we don't get to trust the narratives, narrative, narrators, right? We have to really remember not to necessarily trust or think she's the mouthpiece for Butler. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, so change, there's evolutionary change and then there's like is apocalyptic change, right? Is this a complete break? And then everything can be different on the other side, which I think she plays with that idea with her, the establishment of Acorn, right? The, the, the community that um, they eventually establish. Um, and, uh, you know, what is possible after that? And I think she really struggles with, with that, you know, like how, what is possible after? I think none of us can see it, right? You can't see it till it happens. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are some of my initial thoughts. I'm curious what you think, Shante, too, because, you know, um, for me, um, again, spoiler alert, but it's not really a spoiler insofar as she never wrote the third volume, right. but she says in the very first volume, and that's actually there in the first pages of the graphic novel as well, is that Olamina is very much impacted by the Mars expedition 
And she sort of like frames her own sense of humanity's destiny, right? It's in one of those early yeah. Earth Seed scriptures is that like Earth Seed's destiny is to live among the stars, right? And one of the acts that the, it's actually not Jared, I was just looking at the text again, it's the president before him, Donner. but like one of the other, Donner, yeah, is to, is to, um, uh, is to cut the space program, which she sees as like, I mean, she being Olamina sees as a really uh, kind of short-sighted, um, I mean, she's a kind of technophile. And so, I mean, she, she, she wants to invest, she wants to believe in a certain um, use of social uh, technological advance and space exploration in particular. And I think it's so interesting that Butler as the, as, as an author at the point where the trilogy faces the question of what life would look like yeah. in the stars gets a massive uh, like writer's block and can't figure it out in part because so much is invested in the idea that change looks like interplanetary, um, uh, interplanetary um, uh, space exploration and interplanetary, in an interplanetary settlement. This is something that um, is both a kind of core uh, recurring theme in, in science fiction of the classic era in the mid-century, right? Um, but also you know, SpaceX today, and we have like the billionaire class imagining, you know, they're going to rocket off this planet, <laughs> and, you know, like abandon the rest of us to, you know, uh, but, um, but it's also, it's, it, it, it begs, I think, precisely those questions that, that, um, you know, that Jaina is raising, right, which is that actually what, and I think that other authors, for instance, like I think Samuel Delaney, just to, you know, and uh, amongst others, like really kind of get into it. It's like, well, what does this, what does this off planet human species look like? Is it going to be totally different and new or is it going to re, are, are we going to replicate, you know, certain aspects of, 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 um, of humanity? Um, but how about you, Shante? What do you think about and change (laughs) so many things you both said are so amazing i mean yeah almost every imagination of uh interplanetary federations is based on some model of colonialism we can't we haven't been able to really mostly most science fiction some has uh, been able to imagine past that you know so it's really it's really hard um I mean, people can't, can barely imagine women as like, you know, agents or, you know, brown people with darker hues, you know, so, um, you know, um, I think a lot about the exoplanet system, you know, that exists. And I think about all these planets that we know about, which are approaching a thousand and what life is like there or was like, you know, what was life like on Mars? Because we know Mars had life at some point because the water has been discovered but I um when I reread um, Parable of the Sower and I uh, also started listening to the audiobook. Thank you, Tavia, for that uh, suggestion. Is I was really reading it through my own religious lens, which is tantric Buddhism, and um, which has a lot to do with um, uh, discovering texts and people who discover texts at the appropriate time are called tertons. So that's where tantra comes from. So these texts disappear and then reappear in a time when they're needed, in the dark times. Um, so this has happened throughout, you know, um, really from the 11th century on. 
And, um, and then the, one of the main tenets of all Buddhism being the impermanence and the suffering that actually comes with resisting change, um, including probably the biggest side of suffering, which is the inevitability of our, the de- our own deaths and the deaths of everything and everyone we love, you know? And there's actually a lot. And so I, when I was rereading, I was thinking about this. I was almost thinking, this is so silly that she thinks that going to Mars or another planet is the answer because it's actually not, it's just changing locations. There's yeah. actually, it actually, it never, it was like, it was almost like the most obvious, as she said in her notes, form of earth seed. It had nothing to do with um, changing uh, humanity. And because we're as humans, our systems are still kind of in 1.0 in terms of um, our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems and the, how much shock and trauma we deal with that we're not built for. Um, I mean, she explores this in the Xenogenesis series more about adapting bio adaptation but I found it's sort of striking that the answer is to leave. It reminds me a bit of like, oh, so-and-so is elected. I'm going to go to Canada. I'm going to go wherever. And it doesn't, it's yeah. not a system change. It's kind of a location change. And, and I mean, this is the plant. The earth is my home. You know, uh, I have some, uh, I'm interested in what can be done on earth. And there have been many, many, many different kinds of societies. There still are here that are much more, um, symbiotic with the environment and uh, other animals and insects that are much more in sync, that are much more synchronous, um, that are much more interested in relating to the seasons <laughs> insofar as we still have them. Um, and I've been really interested in this idea coming from mostly white folks that somehow humans are the virus and uh, the real virus. And someone said, you know, capitalism is the virus. It's not humans, you know, because there are a lot of humans, yeah. Yeah. a lot of humans who have been stewards of this earth for a long, long time. And what you see is really 500 years ago, a shift in how we relate to humanity, which is that some humans are um, labor, you know, are, are, are chattel, and some humans are humans. And so from that, from that kind of logic, you we have a whole system that's unfolded. And I think it's really interesting. I'm really curious, like what could we have a post, could COVID help to usher in a post-capitalist society on a larger scale? Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that in the, United, in the United States to me is a kind of, not just because I live here, but I think it's a kind of litmus test because it's the most resistant to communalism. The fact that there's a, a universal um, income, basic income being floated, um, by the House Democrats, whether or not it gets passed, I think this very, you know, Andrew Yang's idea has now gone mainstream. Uh, Canceling of debt has gone, ma- uh, student loan debt has gone mainstream. You see, you know, Spain and Germany and all these different places are like, yep, universal. So this, I, I'm interested in what, um, could we have a post-capitalist society here? You know, um, could we have something where people can still accumulate capital? That's not gonna stop but that there isn't, it isn't based on degradation uh, of other people. So I'm, I've been actually um, uh, very uh, working a lot with my religious communities in terms of uh, we've been just having conversations about like, what is it, what, are, what does community look like now? And so I find a little bit, uh, 
some of the practices we do are a bit esoteric, but they have to do a lot with um, uh, uh, contemplating and, and working with that edge of impermanence um, and what's on the other side of that, which is unknown. And so I, I do think the kind of, I wonder if the third book, and Jaina, maybe the hunting, I haven't had a chance to come to the Huntington yet and look at her papers, but I wondered if the third book was like, oh, uh, going to Mars or going to a planet wasn't the answer. That's not actually Earth seed because it seems so, um, because they're just going to encounter the same things, right? They're, they're um, you know, I mean, in the conflict between her, she and her son, you know, is the, is the next, is the next like, like level of that. And so I, I always felt like, is earth seeds destiny to take it, you know, root among the stars? Hmm. Okay. But what, what, what does that mean for humanity? Right. What does that mean for, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean yeah. for carbon-based, you know, beings? Does that life forms? Yeah. yeah. What does that, mm-hmm. what does that mean in terms of, and then it, and then is it just humans? So I found myself thinking a lot about animals, her relation, her weird relationship with uh, Olamina's or the book's weird relationship with dogs like, 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 I was like, why are dogs so horrible in this book, you know, and, and, um, and, the you know, the, the, the relationship, the competition between human, the human world and the animal world, and really what's a, what's a human future without our um, siblings, you know, without our plant and animal and insect siblings, it seems um, incomplete. Um, and then finally, and I've also been thinking a lot about the sea and the ocean and the fact that so much of, we don't know so much about this planet and there's so much world happening and universe happening in the deep. Um, and that also we're continuing to impact the deep with how we live. And so it, like now it's um, disposable gloves and disposable masks are making, or like killing it, you know, um, sea animals, but also breaking down, making its way back into our food and water supply. So, I mean, we're idiots, of course, but um so I wonder about, uh, I've been thinking a lot about like the relationship to the earth, um, the relationship to um, pre-capitalist societies that were sustainable and amazing all over this planet and how capitalism has kind of limited our imagination about what's possible on the earth. Um, and and that, that, you know, that this is also like a really um, scary moment because um, it's, there's the, a, appearance of the uncontrollable, our very bodies, right? Our very bodies that um, uh, betray us um, through, and, and, and through the unseen, right? And that humans are actually the, it's like this moment of what like, we have to avoid other humans, you know? So it's a very, it's very interesting to think. Well, of, that's inimitable and it's really. Say that again? No, that, you know, it just came to me was, um, uh, the the books in which touch is so um, right. is dangerous, right? There's the thing you, you can't be touched, yeah. and I, I think throughout her books, there's this thing about yeah. touch is very um, charged. It's either you know you have to touch, like in Clay's Ark, where yeah. once you're infected, you have to infect someone else because it's like sexual lurge, you know, and then others where like in the uh, pattern master where you can't touch, you know, it's like, right. you know, so there's really something in Butler about yeah. boundaries and, um, yeah, the physical boundaries with Olamina, right. right. For hyper empathy, right. right. Even in fledgling where yeah, exactly. Stories hyper empathy bite and touch people and smelling exactly. them, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and so going back to when you're thinking about her third book, I mean, what's so fascinating to me, you know, and looking through her folders is, I mean, she spends so much time thinking about what, what's it going to be, you know, what's it going to look like? How are we going to do, what's the plot going to be? And, um, you know, she, at, at one point, um, everybody goes blind, right? I mean, there's uh, what they face on the planet, which she calls rainbow, is, uh, you know, she's saying, well, what are they going to face and how are they going to act, right? And, uh, but there's, you know, so one model is that they all go blind and then uh, Saramago wins uh, the Nobel or the Pulitzer for his book, Blindness. And then she says, okay, I can't do that. You know, so then ultimately, what the she thinks uh, there's a virus up there that infects the humans and makes them hallucinate, right? So again, there's this thing that that they're they're facing. So instead of having the space to uh, blossom in a kind of a utopian sense, right? There's always this instant dystopia that they face, right? It's always questions of how are humans going to survive, and um, and and so in her notes, she. You know, humans don't change. They're the same. And she's, I, I don't know what it was for her if it was difficult to see, to be able to sort of see past, you know. I don't know if that was why she had her, why she quit, but but she quits. At one point she says, everything that I wrote so far is garbage. That's a horrible project. I'm not doing it anymore, right? And then she has this writer's block for years. And, um, you know, which makes us, you know, that's the thing. We can't see, especially if we have, preconceived ideas of what humans are, we can't see a utopia. You know what I mean? We can't see any change. So I think there really is that, I don't know, that struggle for us to, to keep the uh, hope or, or keep practicing a belief in kind of the possibility of mutual aid, you know, which, uh, which we don't see in humans in Butler. Um, except for in moments like acorn. I loved acorn. I was like, let's hang out on acorn longer, you know, <laughs> but, um, uh, so yeah. So my question is, well, what exactly about humans do we want to preserve? Because she is a humanist, right? She's a, a, a human centered model. Right. And, um, you know, when one of my other questions is why are we so invested in finding carbon based life forms? Do you know what I mean? Like, this is a little bit aside from Butler, but like, we go up in space. Why are we looking for carbon-based life forms? Maybe there's some completely different things that we could be looking for. Um, my last thing is, um, actually, there were several, uh, there were two in productions in particular that came out of the Parable series. And one was this fantastic opera by um, uh, uh, Toshi Reagan and... Uh, a cast and it was so amazing focusing on parable of the sower and the other it, it was this opera by performance artists malik Gaines and alejandro segade um which was so amazing to me and i i, I hope that we get to see see it again or uh, hear it again and, showing, and their vision uh, which is showing the much Regan one this week next week <gasps> on NYU, Yay! NYU uh, Tish or not Tish, uh, the uh, Kimmel Center, um, the next Wednesday, the 29th of April. Oh, that's fantastic! I can't wait. Um, but the the it, it, just quickly that uh, 
Gaines and Sagata, they see, they, they're inspired by the parables, but then when everybody goes up there and they have that relationship with the, um, the virus or the microbe, they actually get to a symbiotic relationship in, right? And so they, and not just symbiotic, but something that changes both species into another species. And that's what fascinates me, right? What happens if we do become something entirely different? If we think about change in that way, that we can just, it doesn't necessarily guarantee species survival. Maybe we would turn into something completely different. That kind of speculation gets me really excited. So we are um, almost out of time. And I wanted to maybe close our conversation, first of all, by uh, thanking you, Jaina, for uh, joining us and uh, helping us have this really fantastic conversation around uh, the work of Octavia Butler. Typically, we close Thank the... Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, typically, we close by um, talking about, like, a brief, like, what we're reading or consuming or, you know... Um, and I thought maybe it's worth doing that really quickly, even though we've been talking largely about Butler, so we're clearly reading Butler. Um, uh, and I just thought of it actually because, um, Shante, when you mentioned, uh, this idea of, uh, texts, uh, kind of reappearing or resurfacing in a particular time. Um, so one text that's resurfaced, uh, for me, and meaning I encountered it for the first time in, in, in quarantine and didn't know it existed before is uh, the writings of Julian of Norwich, who is a 14th century anchorite, um, meaning she was a lay person who walled herself into a room adjunct to the church and like just prayed and was like, had this like completely sequestered life. Um, and then she wrote apparently the first text, first text uh, by a woman in the like Western Christian tradition called A Revelation of Love. And so it's like this 14th century text, but everyone is, like, not everyone, but like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like reappeared in these, uh, in a bunch of, of, of circles because it's, um, you know, it obviously speaks to this idea of um, acting at some metaphysical level by staying in place, you know, and this, um, um, but also, you know, what, what the, the particular, um, actually the particular agency of sort of like self-appointed agency of the sort of, of the, of the lay woman, as opposed to someone who's like a nun or a member of a religious order. Um, and, um, and also like the integration of these, like, you know, sort of cells into the larger social fabric of medieval society. So that's the weird text that's <laughs> popped up in my life right now. Um, I don't know about uh, uh, what, you know, and then of course, endless, endless binging of, um, of, of all the, you know, Tiger King, things like that. <laughs> um, uh, how about you? Well, it, it's interesting. It's interesting that you bring up cells, you know, because it's been on my mind in terms of this kind of the isolation and the quarantining that we're doing and this sort of like, and people saying, well, I should really be doing something, but I don't feel like it, <laughs> you know, and what a cell kind of, what we expect from a cell. And then also thinking about the, the prison, the people in prisons right now and, um, and, and their vulnerability. Um, I am 
I'm trying to figure out if I answer that in a fancy way or in a real way. But um, I am, I watched this Korean show called Kingdom, which was oh, yeah. really interesting and, 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 and had some metaphorical kind of power for what's happening right now. And what I loved about it is that the zombies or the infected, which they're mm-hmm. called the infected, uh, begin to be this huge mass that move all together. Okay, look, I'm spoiling everything, but it it was just, it's a fan, it was really a very good series. And um, so that was one thing. And then I also am thinking of a book that has, it called My My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which Tavia had me read. And now I'm just think is, it's it's a dark story, but it's It's the modern day Juliet of Norwich. (laughs) It is? Oh my God, but she's not exactly spiritual, right? But I was thinking, actually, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of reading it aloud on my Instagram live. So I'll let you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading um, two, well, sort of three primary things right now. One is a book called Modern Tantric Buddhism by one of the teachers I study with, a Western Lama, Lama Justin Von Bujos, who's actually um, recovering from COVID. And he's the um, chaplain of, the, he's the head chaplain of the, Department of Corrections. So um, he's been working really hard on getting, you know, people released and things like that at Rikers particularly and um, experiencing a lot of just death uh, and illness in terms of uh, being incarcerated and as well as uh, people who work in prison, um, the clean people who clean and, and guards and all that. I'm reading uh, the intro of a book that uh, Tavia's, uh, on Tavia's series, uh, uh, Zakia Mons Jackson, Jackson's Becoming Human. So the um, intro is out. So I started reading that. And then I'm reading, I'm rereading a really great book. Um, one of the best of YA zombie fictions. I don't know if that's even a category called The Girl with All the Gifts. And it's actually. Oh, yes. Oh, oh. That's one of my faves. Oh, so Come I on. It, I taught the movie because we didn't have time for the book. But um, rereading the book because it's so good and thinking about also this, the transformation of the human, right? To this symbiotic. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, watching, you know, watching, I, um, I never watched Veronica Mars when it was, um, uh, on the air. So I uh, am watching Veronica Mars, <laughs> um, and enjoying it. It's like perfect, um, sort of mindless television. And I'm watching a lot of weird, all the weird Netflix movies, like, um, you know, Tiger King, obviously. And I watched, I do not recommend watching Tiger King and don't fuck with cats at the same time. I was I was a lunatic for like 48 hours. It's like, I was just like, white people are crazy, um, crazy about their cats. So um, Don't Butt With Cats is truly uh, amazing. Um, And just so you and the audience know, sometime this month, maybe today, or maybe this week, Parasite is coming out as a television, as a series on Hulu. So um, that movie is so amazing. And, uh, it's now going to be a, a short, uh, you know, like a six episode series on Hulu. So coming out this month. By who? Well, who's making it? Is it a Korean or American? No, it's Korean. Same, same folks who made the movie and make same people. Excellent. Who, yeah. Are making the, the show. So it's, they're going to explore the lives of the characters more deeply before the ending. So um, it should be uh, really interesting. It's worth watching. Yeah, fantastic. Hmm. So thank you. I want to thank you, Dr. Jana Brown, so much for joining us. Um, always Dr. Nyong'o for being a co-host. Um, want to wish 
people's safety, sanity, and health. Uh, wash your hands, um, wear masks, stay at home, socially distance six feet, and um, you know, take care of each other and yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Shante. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you, Tavia. Fantastic Blackness is written by Shante Paradigm Smalls and Tavia Nyong'o with music and production by Alex Van Gills.